You're watching The Sports Objective, the podcast for pirates. You're listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on The Sports Objective. Join Coach C, a USA Strength and Conditioning Hall of Famer, every Monday night to see in a variety of guests, including former players, former and current coaches, pastors, and others will discuss relevant issues in coaching today's athlete with the goal of equipping the athlete and those coaching them with the physical, mental, and spiritual armor necessary to live their best life. Here's Coach Connors. Uh, welcome to Absolute Empowerment. Uh, today is a very special show because we have a legendary collegiate and NFL strength coach with us, Kent Johnston. And uh, Coach, uh, I am so honored to have you on the show. Thanks a lot for taking the time to come on. Coach, it's my pleasure. Just just enjoyed to be here with you. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about your, uh, your background first, as far as your coaching background. I know that you played defensive back at uh, Stephen F. Austin. And uh, a man of my own heart, I was a defensive back at Salem University in yeah. West Virginia. In West, by God, West, West Virginia back in the late 70s. And uh, I always tell people I was the last white corner in college football, but I don't know if that's true. But, uh, but also you were at uh, Alabama uh, with, with four NFL teams, uh, the Bucks, uh, the Packers actually from, 90, from 92 to 98. Uh, the Seahawks, and then uh, later with the Browns. And you also uh, had a stint back at Alabama. And uh, in 1997, you were voted the NFL Strength and Conditioning Coach of the Year in the NFL. So uh, uh, congrats on that. Uh, Coach, you've had a a tremendous career. I guess the first question I want to ask you is, I'm assuming you work with the great Al Miller. I work with the great Al Miller. And uh, he obviously was probably more influential in me getting into our line of work than, than any other guy. I, it was, it was kind of odd because I met Al back uh, in the late 70s, 1979. Al was – he had gotten out of coaching for just a while, Coach, and, and he had – he had come to Waco, Texas, and I was a high school coach. And he ran a fitness facility. There was a guy here in Waco that had partnered with Arthur Jones, the Nautilus guy. Oh, yeah. And they, they actually built Nautilus West just east of Waco. But Al was in the middle of that, and he controlled the fitness. And I was just a high school coach that came in there and he took me under his wing and he began to teach me. Uh, I never had any goal, uh, Jeff, to, to be anything but a high school coach. I was very happy. That was where I wanted to be. But Coach Miller, through that relationship, opened up a lot of doors for me and, uh, I went on to Northwest Louisiana where he had coached as a graduate assistant. And, uh, and, and Aldist, he took me to Alabama with him when he went there, uh, coach Bryant's last couple of years as a graduate assistant. So we developed a lifelong friendship. Uh, 
He's the top of the line as far as I'm concerned. I'm probably a little prejudiced, but I'm being honest about that as well. So, yes, uh, I, I love Al Miller for a lot of reasons. Yes, sir. And uh, somewhere on YouTube is my podcast with Al. So uh, if you get a chance, uh, listen in on that. So I thought we had a real good oh, conversation. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I really enjoyed that. We talked a lot about his background growing up and so forth. It was very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so we kind of met when I was, uh, you know, George Koontz would come home in the summer and uh, I was kind of indirectly one of your assistants helping with George. Yes, and, uh, you know, to get George ready for those uh, four 300s in 25-yard increments that you ran. I believe. And uh, how much rest did you take between those, Coach? Coach, that's been so long. And, and <laughs> I, I did a lot of stupid stuff when I was a younger guy. I mean, no, I still do a lot of stupid stuff as an older guy. But I've tried to whittle that window down a little bit. So I, you know, probably wouldn't even do that test if I was still in the same role today. But I can't even recall the uh, all I know is, is George always came in in real good shape. So I knew you were doing a job with him. Well, I appreciate that. And I, you know, I got to visit the one time and I, I had a great time when I came up there and, uh, you know, uh, I think we ended up at some bowling alley or something. I mean, I guess yes. that's what you do up there in, in green Bay. And, uh, that's all you do. Yeah, everybody's got a bowling ball with their name on it, customized, I think. They sure do. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, Coach, this this show, I don't make any bones about it. It's a Christian show. And, uh, you know, the, the objective is to have highly successful people who have a testimony of faith uh, uh, work to bring athletes and coaches to a higher spiritual life, you know, any way that I can do that here in my uh, – I guess you could say my later years of life. That's that's what I'm specifically trying to do with the podcast. I'm I'm really enjoying this. Talk to so many coaches, and you know our, our friend uh, Jerry Palmieri yes. uh, came on, and uh, I really enjoyed that as well. Um, so uh, just wanted to mention that while we're talking here, if uh, if you want to throw anything in as far as your faith goes, I mean, feel free to do so. And uh, I will ask maybe a couple specific questions as well, but I think we're, we're probably on the same page with that one. Yes. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, you know, we kind of, before we kind of get into your story a little bit, uh, it's interesting to me always talking to uh, coaches, particularly coaches have been in the NFL. And, you know, what were the characteristics of the most successful NFL players you coached? Uh, can you just hit that for me? Yes. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to start, and I, I just put this in a book I finished writing, but uh, you mentioned this, so I'll start with this. The guys that were most successful were men of faith, and they didn't hold the same theology necessarily from one guy to the next, but they all believed in a, a power that was much higher than them and their faith. This is, this is something that I felt like I observed over the years. Their faith was not in how much faith they had, if that makes any sense. Their faith 
was in the object of their faith. And I think they understood that faith is not, faith rests on the power of the object that's backing it up. And you and I both know who that is, but these men demonstrated that because the NFL can be a dark place at times, you know, and that's a side that the league does a great job of, of uh, marketing and masking over. That's a whole nother discussion. But for that reason, when you have that go-to and that conduit of faith and a power that is greater than you are, much stronger and that you can rely on and it's trustworthy, then I think that's foundational to, to anybody. But they were, they were also men that could control their emotions. They were very emotional. But I would say their mind governed their emotions. And I think that was one of the things that made them successful. They knew when to turn it on and to turn it off. And they had that capability. And then they were consistent workers, very consistent. Uh, it wasn't that they didn't have a bad day, but if they had a bad day, they knew they had a bad day and they had to put that behind them because they knew how to approach work. They, they had a strong work ethic. They had a strong faith. Their mind governed their emotions. And obviously, you know, the Lord had gifted them with ability. So I think those are four things that come to my mind, Coach, when, when you ask a question such as that. Right. Well, I appreciate that. And I ask your opinion of why players with, uh, with talent who should have been longtime players uh, don't. I don't know if you heard that. Say that again, Coach. I'm sorry. You faded out a second. Yeah, we had a little interruption there technically, I think. But uh, your opinion of why players with talent who should have been long-time players did not pan out? Well, I think I, I think a lot of it is in that they didn't feel like they had to work as hard. Uh, right. You know, one thing I saw, and I, I was in the NFL for over 26 years, and one thing I saw uh, change is the players of today – and I don't blame them for this. I blame the system. They're much more entitled than they were back in the mid-'80s when I went into the NFL. And I'm sure you saw this as well, Coach. But uh, and, and I think that entitlement uh, is, is a factor uh, because uh, I think when you rest on your own talent and your own skills – and you put all your eggs in that one basket, then uh, you're what I've seen more than not, you're going to get hurt first. Because if you don't learn to manage and take care of your body with a strong work ethic, most of those guys end up getting hurt. And they're not as resilient as the guys we spoke of a moment ago. So I think that's one factor. But I think that uh, the very mindset that talent 
alone will carry you is 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 a uh, it's a deception. It's it, it's a strong deception, and I think it prevents many of these guys from ever achieving their optimal p- potential. And it, that that mindset, I I strongly believe this. I believe that recognizing and preventing that type of mindset is the responsibility of coaches. And you have to, you got to treat everybody fair, but you can't treat everybody the same way. Right. You've just, and, and, and I think it calls for wisdom. And that's why I've always believed coaching is not a science. It's more of an art that utilizes science to back up what it does, but the art of coaching is what separates great and good coaches from very average ones. I think that's a great point, Coach. Uh, You know, talking about, uh, let's say, character through spiritual strength, can you talk a little bit about Reggie White? Yeah, I, I probably may have trouble talking about Reggie White without tearing up, so forgive me if that happens, but Reggie White, first and foremost, was one of the best friends I've ever had. And uh, I don't understand uh, God's timing. I don't understand many of the things we walk through, but uh, when Reggie came to Green Bay in, uh, I believe it was 93, you know, in that day, he was one of the first big name free agents. And uh, he came and we didn't think we had a shot at Green Bay. Because he was going, you know, he was making the world tour. And he came in and I met him. And uh, I could tell then there was something he and I had an affinity for. I didn't get to know him until after he had signed with us. This is kind of a funny story. It's a true story. (laughs) I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly, but uh, Ron Wolf, who was our general manager, he said, Kent, get on a plane, go down there and talk to Reggie about his weight because he's overweight. He had made the world tour and everybody had whined and dined him, you know, as they were trying to get him to sign. And so I flew down to Tennessee and Reggie picked me up at the airport and I began to see how gracious a man he was. He took me to his house coach and we went in and he took me into the kitchen and he said, I got to go get Sarah. I want you to meet my wife. So he left and I was sitting alone in there in the kitchen for a couple of minutes. And I began to look around and the first thing I did is I, I saw his refrigerator and it was annoying. It looked like what we used to call a walk-in cooler. It was so large. But this was what impressed me. There was a chain with a big lock around both handles. The refrigerator was chain locked. And then I looked at all the <laughs> cabinets. I know. I looked at the cabinets and the cabinets had and they were real nice cherry wood cabinets, I believe. Well, they they all had padlocks on. And so Reggie came back and he introduced me to Sarah. And and uh so <laughs> uh 
I was afraid to ask the guy because I still didn't know him, you know, but I knew it was going to have to get around. So after they were very gracious, they, they had a meal for us. And later that night, I felt a little more comfortable. I said, Reggie, I said, you got to tell me about locking your refrigerator and these padlocks on your cabinets. And he said, yeah, he didn't say anything, actually. He just kind of ducked his head. But Sarah, his wife, jumped in and said, I'll tell you why, Kent, because the man's got an eating problem. <laughs> and she said, I understand who's paying the bills. And, and what she was saying to me, he said, you don't worry about that side of it. I'll take care of that. And so over the years, Reggie and I developed an intense friendship. We did a lot of things together as a family, our families. Uh, we stayed in close contact when I left Green Bay and he had gone to Carolina. And uh, I talked to him probably about 10 days before he passed. And uh, it, it was it was a good conversation. But uh, something that I'll share here, which I do share in this book I wrote, but it, this, my wife, uh, Reggie died on a Saturday evening or Sunday morning in his sleep. And we were in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. You mentioned part of what I had done, but at that time I was coaching at the University of Alabama. I think it was 2004. And, uh, I, I walked in our, our bedroom. We had a little love seat in the bedroom and my wife was sitting on the couch, Jeff, and, and she had this look like she was scared on her face. And I said, baby, what's wrong? And she said, Kent, I have no idea what's wrong, but something is up with Reggie. She said, he is all over my spirit this morning. And she had no clue he had passed when she made that statement. And about an hour later, we did get a call from Pam, that's my wife, uh, her mother, sharing with us that it had been on the news. You know, that was really before the social media or anything like that. It had been on the news that he passed. But it was a big shock to us. But... Uh, I can honestly say, Coach, uh, and, and our, our, our relationship was rooted in our faith in Christ, and, uh, but I can honestly say that he's one of the best men I've ever known. Well, uh, you probably don't know that I know about this story, but uh, tell me a little bit about the Harley-Davidson. <laughs> You've been talking to Coots probably. <laughs> Well, Reggie, you know, he loved to act. He was uh, uh, just born a uh, great sense of humor. You know, he, he went on WCW once and wrestled Steve McMichael, and he asked me <laughs> to be his trainer. And we had the most fun down there. Uh, in, in It was in Charlotte, actually, was where the Pay for Few event was. But he could imitate Muhammad Ali to a T and he came to the house and I wasn't there, but uh, he called me big daddy and he called my wife, big mama. <laughs> and so he came in the house coach and he said, uh, 
I got something for you, big mama. And uh, he said, you got to guess what it is. So she said he went through the motions of sitting and he came in and my kids were just a little bitty. They, he was so big that they, he, he scared them sometimes. He'd just walk in the room and they'd run off. But, after, you know, he would get them and hug them and cuddle them and all this and that after that. But uh, he acted out this motorcycle and then he took her outside and he said, I got this for Big Daddy. And so I wasn't even there. He brought it by and left it there. It was a brand new fat boy. And, wow. you know, that but that's the kind of heart he had. Yeah, you know, and and I'll share this. I don't think this is a, a bad thing to share, other than to drive home a point. When Reggie was with the Philadelphia Eagles prior to marrying Sarah, who's a great woman, yeah, uh, he about gave everything he had away. Mm. That was how giving his heart was. And of course, I didn't know him then, but I had people tell me the story. Uh, and Sarah came in his life and Sarah, you know, began to become the manager. And, uh, but Reggie's, uh, yeah, that's just one example, coach. He, he gave our defensive line coach, uh, and I think Gilbert Brown, a couple of other guys may have been involved, but he gave uh, him a, a brand new truck. Yeah. Well, so, you know, it wasn't just me, but it, it was just his heart for people. But the greatest thing he ever gave away was himself. Right. Well, I'm sure he had a lot to do with the leadership on that team. And yes, sir. And also, yeah. I'm sure that uh, many, many players were edified through knowing Reggie White. And uh, you know, I just wanted to make sure that we mentioned that, of course. And uh, I'm glad you did, Coach. I was at UNC Chapel Hill, and for whatever reason, Reggie was there. I have no idea, but the elevator opened down on the, the bottom floor one day. I was about to go up to the offices, and there stepped out Reggie White. So uh, I had the opportunity to at least meet the man. That is so awesome. Yeah. So uh, That's it was so awesome. No doubt. Uh, so, you know uh, – uh, Jerry Palmier, I don't know if he sends you this. He, he may send this stuff to you, too. He sends me scripture every day. Yes, sir. He does me as well. And uh, so today I was reading, uh, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified as with your mouth you confess or save, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Salvation is a two-step process. You first believe with your heart. The heart is not only a place of emotions within the body, but also intellect. Belief with the heart results in commitment. And I just mentioned that because I believe that uh, – you know, I don't I don't know all the reasons that the Packers were successful, but I know the teams that I coached over the years that had success. I think I coached 16 both teams that I'm proud of. But, uh, you know, we talk about the heart and, uh, and, and at East Carolina, we talked about the heart of the pirate. And we also even had an award that was called the heart of the pirate. But, uh, you know, I just wanted to mention that uh, belief with the heart results in commitment. Yes. And, uh, I don't know how you feel about the teams that had great success that you coach, but uh, the teams that I coached definitely had heart. And I think that's, uh, that's something people don't talk to, uh, you know, enough about, in my opinion. I would agree. And, and I, I, I will stand in that line with you that 
the successful teams I've been on, they all were teams that had a lot of heart. Yeah. No doubt. Well, I want to, could you just tell me a little bit about uh, your story as far as uh, where you grew up, uh, maybe your involvement in athletics growing up and uh, people that influenced you, maybe influenced your faith, uh, your family, your mentors, coaches, whoever. So, uh, you know, g- give me a little bit of a, uh, information on the childhood of Kent Johnson. Yeah, well, that's going back a ways. I, I, I can, I, I'm from Central Texas. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a little town called Mejia, M-E-X-I-A. Looks like it's pronounced Mexia. Okay. Uh, but it's about 40 miles east of Waco, where we live now. And, uh, I I had a great upbringing. I had uh, my dad was not saved until later in life, but I, I had a very godly grandmother who was very influential in my life. So she was very influential spiritually in an early age. Yeah. And then uh, in high school, I had one coach. Uh, Coach Eddie Walski, who was he's kind of a legend down here in Texas, high school coaching, uh, who was very influential on on me. Uh, I was an average athlete, you know. I liked to do as much stuff as I could, coach, and I uh, but and I knew I had to work a lot harder than than some people, but that was the mentality I had, and uh, I tried to always apply myself. Uh, best I could, you know, with, with what I had to work with and the knowledge base I had. Uh, I had a very godly woman in Mahia on my junior year in high school. She began to invite high school students into her home to teach Bible study. And uh, I probably grew more in those two years as a young believer. Uh, you know, I, I went Stephen F. Austin. Uh, I actually went to Baylor a couple of years, and then I've transferred to Stephen F. Austin. And uh, I was a defensive back, like you said. But you know, in 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 those days, uh, everybody ran the veer or the wishbone. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. no way I'd be a defensive back if if, if <laughs> in today's level of football with the schemes there. I would, uh, I would not be back there, but at any rate, I enjoyed that and, uh, got out, began high school coaching, as I mentioned a little, uh, earlier and just, uh, just again, just tried to go. And I, by God's grace, I just met people, you know, I met people that were willing to help me and, uh, I wanted to help them. I didn't ever want to disrespect them. Uh, I did, and I would say this, and maybe this can serve as some encouragement to some fellow believer out there that might be listening to this. I did have a period in my life that I, 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 uh, I'm best way I know to put it is I misrepresented Christ in my lifestyle. And that went on for about 
five or six years until I met the woman that I ended up marrying. But, uh, you know, there are many times that during that five or six years, I just wish I could go back and undo a lot of the things I did. Very selfish things. Very uh, things that would... Lend, lend one to believe that I wasn't even a believer at the time. But I do, I'm, I'm one of the, and, and again, I, Reggie and I didn't see this the same way, but my particular belief is once God grabs hold of you, he doesn't let go of you. Yeah. Uh, if, if I had to hold on to God and my salvation was dependent on me holding on to God, I would lose it, but I trust he holds on to me. And again, there are people that see that differently and that's fine. But I know for me, it had a lot to do with turning me around because uh, now I'll say this coach, he disciplined me very severely. That's physically. And that's a whole nother story. But sometimes God has to put you on your back for you to look up again. And yeah. uh, I, I don't, <laughs> those were scary times. I would never want to go back there. Yep. But uh, I can honestly say this. He didn't give me what I deserved because I deserved a lot worse. He, right. was very he was very merciful, even in the midst of the discipline. So, uh and then, you know, he, he got us realigned and I, he gave me a phenomenal woman as my wife. She's, uh, you know, the joy of my life physically here on earth. And uh, we've been very blessed. We've got four sons and uh, she's, you know, we work together on the same projects. So, at any rate, that's kind of a few moments of, of, of where I've been briefly, Coach. I got you. Yeah, uh, when I was younger, I felt like I was invincible and could do anything, and there'd be no repercussions or consequences. Yeah. And uh, so I went through the same same type of phases, probably for longer than you did. Uh, you know, I got slapped around a little bit. God woke me up with a melanoma. Oh. Then a hip replacement. Then I had bradycardia. And so, uh, you know, uh, those things give you a wake-up call. Amen and, to that. Uh, you know, hey, I'm squatting heavy now. I feel great. Uh, you know, I, I do cardio like a maniac. I mean, uh, it's, uh, you know, I'm on track now. And That's I'm cool. Like, I'm in the right, I'm on the right road. You know what I'm That's saying? I mean, right. so uh, thank God for the grace and mercy of, of allowing me to get back on track. That's great. And uh, jerking a knot in my tail. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so I feel all that with you. And I think a lot of us, you know, as we get older, we start experiencing these physical things and like, wait a second. You know, I was, I bench pressed over 400. What's going on with this thing? I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> you know so. Yeah, we're 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 uh, we we end up shriveling a little bit. That's yeah, no doubt. <laughs> but uh, I got a gym in my garage. I'm going to get it about 
five or six days a week. So uh, I'm not going to go down. Not going to go down easy. Keep it up, Coach. So, uh, uh, what do you think the difference was? Maybe a couple of things in training collegiate players with uh, NFL players. Well, I think uh, I would I would say this, Coach. First of all, I think the mentality is different. I think uh, in the NFL, I had to do a lot. In, in college, at least in the age that you and I worked in, you could pretty much expect you were going to tell somebody to do something and they were going to do it. Well, in the NFL, you have to do a lot better job of uh, – selling yourself and, uh, you know, proving uh, that you know and what you ask that player to do is is the best-case scenario for them. Uh, a lot of the programs, uh, in particular, as I got older in the league, and, again, uh, the last job I had, as we were talking before we began the interview, was with Carolina, uh, as a director of player wellness, but we uh, customized and individualized the programs for the guys uh, based on what their individual need was. Uh, the other thing I saw is that when you get up in that area, it's different for every player coach because I think everybody biologically – they may age faster than their chronological age due to yeah. a lot of things. It could be they just worn more. It could be they have suppressed immune system function. It could be due to a lot of different things. But uh, the older guys, their body, their central nervous system has been exposed to so many different training techniques that it really becomes difficult to elicit a good training response with those guys. So just interjecting little new things that they had not been exposed to uh, throughout their career. And, and in order to do that, you have to just sit and talk with them and, and pick their brain. Well, what have you done? You know, what did you do as a rookie? What, what, what progress has you made? So, uh, you know, it could be something simple like adding bands to a squat. Right. Or, uh, you know, some little trick like that, just uh, changing the resistance uh, method somewhat, you know, from uh, accommodating the variable and, and things like that. So uh, I think that those two things stand out. One is the, uh, the mental state of that player. They're men. They're grown men. They want to be treated. If you don't treat them like grown men and they don't, I always had the, the pro guys have input into their program. Yeah. Cause there were so many ways to skin a cat and I didn't do that in college. Uh, I, 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 I didn't operate the same way. Uh, and then the other thing I would say is, uh, the older a guy gets in the NFL, I, I've always believed this, and I spent almost all my career working in the return-to-play area, being coordinated with doctors and, and the, uh, the athletic trainer and the PTs when somebody got injured. 
But one of the key drivers of injury is movement dysfunction. And almost every older player in the NFL has some level of movement dysfunction. Many times and most of the time, that movement dysfunction is correctable. You just have to hone in on what, and, and it, for instance, if a player is moving with overpronation in his ankles, then a lot of times that overpronation can be corrected. But if it's not corrected, it's going to lead to injuries up the chain. Uh, a lot of times a player will develop valgus as they get older. Yeah. Of course, if you don't eliminate valgus, you're more susceptible to MCL and ACL injuries. So it's, it's, it's diagnosing movement dysfunction. And to be honest, that won many players over. Right. That, that, that was one of the, because, uh, you know, they, like I said earlier, they had done so many things. There's, there's not enough people in our field that are educated at discerning movement dysfunction. And, and when, when our athletes are traveling through the sagittal plane, through the frontal plane, and through the rotational plane. And, and it's it, the reason is nobody, there's no course for that in school. None of us learned that in school. I, I went back and checked uh, when I wrote a book about developmental uh, movement skills for children. I could not find one university in the United States of America that taught a class that was strictly devoted to movement skills, like how you walk, how you run, how you sprint, how you slide or shuffle, how you jump and land, how you decelerate. Although there, there are 36 basic movement skills. And if those are wrong, everything we build up the pyramid as coaches, whether it's a fitness skill like how to squat, how to do a lunge, uh, when we begin traveling in any of those paradigms, they can be off. And in the very top are your sports skills. Uh, well, I mean, it's just a, a cascade. And I think it movement dysfunction is one of the outside of correcting somebody's lifestyle. I believe movement dysfunction is one of the most correctable drivers of injury that exist. Yeah. And so uh, that's where I'm working right now is, is with, with just athletes and other coaches in this area of movement dysfunction and corrective uh, therapeutic work or exercises to, to set it straight, but it's a big deal. And, and it's a very big deal in the national football league. Yeah. I, uh, I was exposed early to, uh, went down to the Philadelphia Eagles, see what they were doing and met Ronnie Jones. And he brought in Kevin McNair and Kevin McNair was one of the first people I've seen that even talked about postural integrity. Yeah. And basically, uh, I think I spent half my life coaching, coaching people uh, away from anterior pelvic tilt. So, yeah. but, uh, you know, Kevin was, uh, 
one of the first people I ever heard about, you know, who was actually coaching speed and speed for football and talking about force application, postural integrity, uh, body position, uh, foot plant, you know, all these different things, arm stroke. Uh, and, you know, these are things nobody ever heard of before. And then, so now uh, everybody's a speed guru, you know, how many years later? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and but, some uh, of them are proclaiming to be speed gurus, but they're not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to ask you about the new technology a little bit, uh, the, you know, velocity-based training, force plates, uh, all this different feedback that we're getting, uh, GPS monitoring, uh, talking about reps in reserve. Uh, you know, I don't know how we did it without all these things, but you know, t- tell me, t- give me your take a little bit about uh, how effective these things are. Uh, it, do they take away something from the art of coaching are they adding something significant that we need? Um, certainly these young strength coaches now uh, very much interested in the technology, maybe even more than being on the floor as much, uh, which is where I wanted to be throughout my whole career. Um, so uh, I got a little bit outdated in the last few years of my career, no doubt about it, because I just want to stay on the floor and coach. So uh, yeah, give me your thoughts. <clears throat> Well, my thoughts are probably very similar to yours, Coach. I, I This is the best way I know to put it because it was a uh, – when I worked in Carolina, the owner for the Carolina Panthers, he's a numbers guy. Yeah. And, and analytics are very big to him. And I respected that. And, and I, I do believe that analytics, whether it's force plate data or GPS or what – you know, there's so many that are coming up you can't even keep track of. But uh, they are a useful tool. But this is what I've seen and what I still believe to this day. And it's hurting a lot of teams, not only in the National Football League, but probably in college, because colleges tend to follow what the league does. Yeah. And, And it's this. They're not looked on as just a tool or one more tool you can put in your box or arrow you can stick in your quiver, but they're driving the entire ship. Right. And analytics cannot drive the entire ship. Uh, It's really all over the place in the NFL uh, because there's money in it. Right. And, uh, but this is the best way I know to put it. Barry Rubin is a very good friend of mine. He's probably the dearest friend I ever had in the NFL in terms of, a, and I had some really close friends uh, in the NFL that were fellow strength and conditioning and athletic performance guys. Well, the Kansas City Chiefs do not even use GPS units. They don't wear them. Yet yeah, they just won the Super Bowl last year. Right. So uh, Rube was all about training. He was all about, and, and what he didn't, this is what I loved about Barry. What he didn't know, he tried to get people in to help him 
in areas he felt like he was a little weak that could bring him back up. And, and don't get me wrong, he's a strong, strong, knowledgeable guy. But, for instance, he brought Derek Hansen in to assist the Chiefs with speed work. And, and so there's a lot of coaches that don't want to do that. Uh, and I respect that because everybody's got to make their own choices. Yeah. But I respect – and, and I, I, I was always kind of like Rube was – I want to get people in to help our players who were smarter than I was. And what I saw that it wasn't the gimmicks, which I, I want to use that term real loosely, because as I said earlier, there's a lot of analytical tools that are very good. I, I think they're like force plate readings. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big, especially in return to play work, huge believer. Yeah, a lot bigger believer in force plate readings than I am the three hop test. It's been traditional, I, you know, and it gets back to this movement dysfunction thing we were talking earlier. Like three hop test is a standard test to clear you from an ACL, and you have to go a certain distance compared to the well. Athletes will sacrifice skill, how they ought to land and land all plantar flexed and all, just to try to get a distance. And so they're driving injury, trying to take the very test that's supposed to clear them from injury. Force plates don't do that. So my only point in bringing that up are there are good markers, new technological markers that seem to exist out there. But to be quite honest, some of them are so new that I think if people tell you they know what they're talking about with all this data about them, I, I don't, I'm not sure they're being honest because they haven't even been around that long. Uh, so, uh, like, you, uh, there's no substitute for good, hard training, smart training, with a coach who uh, who knows what he's doing. And and uh, I I would say one other thing, coach. I think analytics create lazy coaches. Yeah. Again, I don't think we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but artificial intelligence, recognition of movement. Well, it's common sense. What that does is makes jobs easier. And if you're in the corporate world, you can run more people through you may not be as accurate with AI, or you may be more accurate. But what it does is going back to movement dysfunction. If I have an AI program that's, that's, that's observing overpronation, or they're looking at supination on ground contact, or over-rotation of the shoulder, uh, and I'm not learning how to pick that up as a coach, then, you know, that's what coaching is about. As you well know, I've followed your career. It's you learn new things and you apply those things as coaches. Uh, a lot of the stuff that a GPS unit will give you, in my opinion, if you have a trained eye, you're going to pick that stuff up anyway. Right. So uh, I'm a big believer in coaches – being forced to learn certain things they should learn 
rather than depend on some machine to acquire the data for them. I agree. My favorite thing in coaching was watching people move. <laughs> that was my yeah. favorite thing to do. I would agree. You know, because that's what football is, it's movement. Yes. That's a good so, word, uh, Coach. I, I wanted to be on the floor, on the field. I want to watch people move. I don't want to sit in front of a computer. I mean, that's that was my deal. So, uh, Well, I, I, I certainly would stand in that line with you. Yeah. It's all about the people. And, and, yeah. and uh, again, getting the right people around. You get the right people around, you're going to have a successful program with or without analytics. Right. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do is give you just a few things from that I've believed over the, over the years and comments. So, uh, you know, and these aren't very highly scientific. Uh, Number one, get your reps. Yeah. So, you know, I look at this uh, APR. I mean, I I don't know what all they call the different things that you do for uh, rate, rate of perceived exertion, uh, reps in reserve. Hey, look, I got coaches out there in every rack. If you can't get your reps, you got the wrong weight on the on the bar. And yeah. guess what? We're going to lighten the weight because we want you to get your reps. Yeah. But if we want you to get stronger, we'd like to see you add weight to the bar because that's how you get strong. Right. Uh, but uh, number two, move the bar with intent. Yep. So everything you do is with the intent to be fast. And uh, when we look at this VBT, and of course, I use Tendo units for many, many years. I use them in different ways. One of my favorite ways to use a Tendo unit was a block clean, looking at 1.2 meters per second, which is equated with about 76 to 79% of a 1RM. And I, I thought I had a lot of guys improve their second pull in a power clean, which I thought had specificity to the sport. And uh, and basically, uh, you know, I had three guys of power clean over 400 uh, Wow. You know, 10 guys at 374 better. You know, I mean, uh, I don't know how many at 352 and better, but I felt like that there, there was transfer there. So that was my own opinion. And I wasn't afraid to snatch people either. Right. Um, <clears throat> execute speed, movement, and multi-jumps with intent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of my one of my uh, mentors, Boucher Snyder, uh, when I started getting into this thing, particularly thinking about Hey, should I be training these skill and, and mid guys different than the linemen? I think I should. And how similar should I train my skill guys to sprinters and hurdlers and taking a look at what people are doing with track track uh, with those guys, particularly in season? Uh, it, should I come off a of heavy squats and make sure I've got, you know, elasticity, proprioception, coordination coming back to the athlete at the highest level? So I thought that was a huge point that boo would make that uh, I tried to put into effect with, you know, with my skilled guys and uh, training for dynamic mobility. So I think dynamic mobility is a little bit different than flexibility. Um, Number five would be push yourself to a conditioning level beyond any component or any opponent. So uh, I, I don't know what that might entail in whoever's program. Yeah, uh, and the NCA has done a good job in basically uh, leveling the field. You know, with all these restrictions, where you you have a hard time gaining an edge in in conditioning. But the one thing, coach, that I think in playing defensive back in college is that I believe the defensive backs need to be trained at a higher level than anybody else because you don't see much substitution going on out there, and at the same time, 
uh, you're looking at high tempo offenses. And I really think that those are your guys that have to be in, in excellent physical condition, actually more than anybody else. So uh, that's my little tidbit there. Uh, <laughs> I'll throw in. Word. Uh, next one is uh, the need to develop strength requires elevated forms of resistance and the key word there being elevated, uh, which I've already mentioned, but that might even happen in the form of a, a sled sprint. You know, now we're looking at uh, people who are sprinting with heavier sleds, shorter distances. Uh, you know, sometimes the distance of the sprint is dictating how much weight is on the sled. And now you've got these elaborate, uh, I think the uh, Sprint 1080 is what, $20,000? Yeah. Uh, Very expensive. Adjusts the resistance of the sprint and also provides you with an overspeed component. And then injury prevention requires a balanced multiple exercise approach for each major joint area. And those were kind of uh, the tenets to my overall program. Uh, so that's a, and you had a successful program, coach. So just try to keep it simple. Yeah, I love that. So <laughs> I mean, it really, why make it difficult? Yeah. Uh, I used to love tough guys, man. I love I love guys that could, you know, we. We ran 300s around the field at crazy times. Uh, no, I mean, my last, uh, I think my last year at Carolina, we ran those four shuttles, 300-yard shuttles and 25-yard increments because I didn't want to see anybody pull up around 110s. Uh, Bush Davis was always concerned about that. Right. But uh, I think I only gave those guys a minute rest, and my skill guys had to make 65 with four of them with a minute rest. So, uh I was like, if you make this at the end of the summer, you know, we're going to build into it. But I don't think anybody's in better shape than you if you can make this. So that's that's a good strong test. But uh, Butch, for instance, he had a lot of NFL experience, and he was like, "Guess what? We're not going to condition during the season at all." I'll never blame you for losing in the fourth quarter. I say, Butch, whatever you want to do, man. No, <laughs> so I didn't necessarily agree with that, but. Everybody's different. And the guys, that, the coaches that have been in the NFL to come back to college, you know, I think that, uh, you know, they were, I think they were convinced to some extent that it didn't need to be as intense as we were making it at the college level. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, I found that to be true to some extent. Right. So coach, before we close it out, can you tell me a little bit about your family, your, uh, your your wife, your kids. I know. You, didn't you have a, just have a son played in the NFL or is playing in the NFL? Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, we. Uh, I, well, I'll start with my wife. Her name's Pam. I met her at the University of Alabama. She was a basketball player. She was a swimmer as well, uh, and, and she was a good athlete. And uh, she, when I was a graduate assistant, she was a senior. So when she finished her career, we kind of uh, started dating, fell for each other, and we were married in 1987, stopped off at the Birmingham Courthouse and got married. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, we got four sons, Coach. Uh, my third son, Clay, is the one you referenced. He Okay. He's played the last three years in the NFL. Uh, he's with the Bengals. Uh, wow. 
last year, the next to the last play, he blew his ACL out against the Chiefs in the AFC Championship. So that was the end of January, and uh, he has been here. He was a free agent. So he's been here, and we've been working his rehab and return to play, but uh, Dr. James Andrews there in Pensacola did his surgery. He's a, a good friend. You know, he was our team doctor at Alabama, and he and I got to know each other well there. And, and uh, he, he actually cleared Clay to go back to practice at seven months from the ACL. And uh, next Tuesday is eight months, and that's uh, – where we think he's going to clear him to go back to games right now. He's not with a team, but uh, what he's been told is, is uh, you know, there are two or three teams just waiting to right for him to be able to play in a game. And, and so we'll see what happens, but my other three sons, I'm just as proud of two of them are in the computer industry. And one of them is a uh, athletic trainer. Okay. Great. Yeah. Now your uh, your son in the NFL is he a linebacker or he is a linebacker. Okay, his name's yeah. Clay Johnston, and again he was number forty four. He played for the Bengals last uh, couple of years, so nice. he had the opportunity to play in the Super Bowl and nice. You know, uh, that was that was cool. But uh, you know, coach, th- this it's very interesting. Uh, God's given him a, a, a big heart. He he was projected to be a second or an early third-round pick his senior year in college, and he injured his other knee. So this was a different knee this go-around, but he injured his other knee, and he ended up going in the seventh round to the Rams. Okay. Uh, so he's, he's uh, you know, you, you talk about, you like tough guys. You'd like this kid. And <laughs> I'm sure I would. <laughs> he, he, it's, he gets it more from his mama than me. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm very thankful, and I'm sure as you are, Coach. Uh, but I appreciate you. Not many people ask about families, and I appreciate you doing that. Yes, sir. I love to hear about it. Yeah. The, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to tell you real briefly what I'm up to right now because uh, – I'm gonna be. I'm gonna message you with some nuggets as I get through this. But I'm. I'm in school. I'm in school right now to be a health and life coach. Oh, coach, that's great. So uh, I'm gonna add that to. I'm gonna put on my resume for uh, you know how to teach somebody how to do a dumbbell uh, bench press at the bottom of my resume, and uh, I'm gonna try to get into some life coaching and uh, some health coaching. My I think my first six weeks is on nutrition. So. Uh, I want to be sending you some nuggets. Uh, Coach, please do. (laughs) Please do. I I, I want to hear more about that. God bless you for that. (laughs) I I, I know you're the type of guy that's never going to retire. No way, man. (laughs) I got to try to help somebody, but first I got to help myself. Yes, sir. I'm I'm, I'm with you, Coach. Yeah. Coach, I got to close it, and uh, it's been just great talking to you. I really appreciate your time, and – Hopefully we'll uh, have another discussion at some time in the future. We'll kick some stuff around and uh, I'll be uh, sending you some information. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, 
This is this is Jeff Connors, Absolute Empowerment. Uh, God bless, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Coach. Thank you, Coach. God bless you. You've been listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on the Sports Objective. Join us every Monday night for a new edition of the show. Listen to the show pretty much everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to follow us on social media at the Sports OBJ on Twitter and TikTok, at the Sports Objective on Instagram. Like and follow our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. As always, we appreciate you listening to the show. And go Pirates!